look forward to worshiping on together. This morning, um, going to be sharing in a little different form. I, there were two subjects on my mind, and I decided to share both of those. Um, and really didn't think about them possibly complementing each other. Thank you, Murray. But I feel like they do. And also I'm blessed with the way the Lord has been leading the service thus far. So the first portion I'd like to talk about this morning is fling idolatry. Um, and it has to do with specifically thinking of the 4th of July and our response to that, the world's response, and um, just just giving some thoughts here on the Christian's outlook, how, how we view this as children of the kingdom of heaven. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, if you would. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to, as to the wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For though many, for we though many are one bread and one body we are for we all partake of that one bread otherwise observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar what am I saying then that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything rather that the things with which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so I pose kind of a rhetorical question here this morning. What idolatries are we as Christians tempted with today? Are we tempted with idolatry today as Christians? Um, you know, sacrificing to the Egyptian idols isn't a temptation for the children of, for, for us today, as it was for the children of Israel in the desert. Uh, there, the, the children of Israel had fled Egypt. They were, you know, we read the story, been given a mighty deliverance uh, by crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. They got to the other side. Things got tough. They thought back to Israel again and to the gods they had become accustomed to worshiping there. And they kind of their minds went back there. They wanted the leeks and the garlics, they said, but they also wanted to go out and, and kill a cow or a bull and sacrifice their old Egyptian idols. And, um, and God put, in Leviticus, God put a special line there. He said all animals that are sacrificed need to be brought to the temple. He wanted the people to learn not to sacrifice to the Egyptian idols. They're in the desert. Uh, when Paul was addressing here in 1 Corinthians, he was addressing the meat being offered to idols. He was telling the, the Christians were sometimes going to and eating at friends' places, and sometimes this second-rate meat that had already been offered to idols was put on the table, 
And people would mention, you know, hey, this was meat offered to idols. And Paul addresses this. And I'm not going to go into that necessarily. But, um, you know, that's not an issue for us today. We don't have to worry about eating meat that's been offered to idols in our culture here. Now, that's not the case across the world. There are places where care needs to be taken for that. But we don't. Our grocers don't offer two categories of meat. Meat that's offered been, been offered to idols and other meat. Um, so what we're offered is maybe pasture-raised beef and, and commercial beef. And, you know, we have to make up our minds which one we'd rather have. Um, so there's nothing to bring about worship in either way in those, of course. But did the wheel stop turning? Is idolatry not a thing anymore? Is that not a concern for us? Uh, did the devil get tired of tempting us with idol worship and go home and give up, you know? Is the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3, is that irrelevant for us today? You know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I don't think it is. I think we are just as prone to idolatry. It's just as much of a temptation to us today as it ever as it's ever been. Uh, and we, we bring up things like, you know, our iPhones or our iPads or our cars or things like that as potential idolatry. But there's a, there's a lot more. I mean, the devil is trying to snag us at every point. And I think that we are facing a lot of idolatry when we look at our country, country and its pomp and show around the 4th. And I w- I'd like to address that. I, I love our nation. I love our country. <clears throat> I've been out of it at times. I come back. I appreciate it. So I don't want to, to give that kind of an impression that I don't appreciate our country. I really do. But I do want to address what our responses of Christians should be towards our country. Uh, John Adams said this, this about the fourth. He said, this day ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. He wrote this letter to his wife, Abigail. So it's the red, white, and blue. It's the parades, fireworks, and speeches. That's what the fourth is about. It's our liberation from the European oppression, uh, from the... from uh, England's grip on us. And it said, in quote, we're a free people. But I would ask the question, are we really free? Are we really free? Just by virtue of being a U.S. citizen. U.S. as a free country held many, many people in brutal, terrible bondage for many years after it, the Declaration of Independence. Um. And the values upheld by Independence Day don't really correlate or entirely dovetail with the values of the believer. Um, the blue angels aren't doing the work of the Lord. You know, majestic, awe-inspiring, captivating it is to watch that harnessing of, of talent to amazing design and raw power. The blue angels aren't doing their work to bring glory to God uh, when they're giving their shows or when they're in their duty. Um, I remember being in Romania and someone telling me this. They had seen this on TV. Um, the, during the Gulf War, the, the U.S. and the Brits, they stationed military in, in the Black Sea there, Black Sea port. 
And the Romanian, uh, a Romanian reporter was asking them, was asking the British people, you know, what is this equipment for? Uh, what, are these, what do these tanks do, their capabilities and so forth? And the British would go to great lengths to say, you know, well, how they, what they do and how they can do things and their capabilities and so forth. But this person who was re relating this to me said that when the reporter asked the U.S., what are your, what's your equipment for? They would just get a simple reply, and that it, an unvarnished reply, and that is to kill people, to kill the enemy. That was the reply, the response. Well, that's antithetical to Christ's message, isn't it? Antithetical to love your enemy, do good to those who to hate you, and to give the other cheek. And uh, I believe it does us well to think critically of the message we're sending to our friends and our neighbors during the independence season of our country. You know, they, do, will they see us as separated? Are we separated is a question. Or will they see us lusting on the leeks and the garlics? Uh, and of course, the, the most important question again is, is the question of our heart. Are we Christ? Are we truly Christ? Is, is that... You know, how we answer that is, is, very, is fundamental here. Um, or are we truly in awe at our country's amazing military capability? I mean, it's easy to do that. It's easy to be in awe of science and the harnessing of power and, and uh, skill and everything else. And, uh, but, you know, that's not Christ's kingdom. Um, when we view with admiration, become involved as spectators... And give the vibes through the red, white, and blue. Uh, whether it's in our attitude, whether it's in our dress, our speech. We make an obvious statement that directly links us with the kingdom of this earth. And we can decide, we can as Christians decide there's a fine line to dance in this area. Uh, we can play that game. But I would ask the question, who are we really fooling? Um, John 17 and Christ's high priestly prayer says this, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And uh, I don't think there's anything more worldly than warfare and, and the celebration of force. Um, so again, I love my country. I love my fellow men. And having spent a number of years in Romania, here in Belize, I can say with gratefulness that I'm a U.S. citizen. However, there are, there are values that are held and promulgated by my country I don't agree with. You know, I don't appreciate that our country is spreading the corrupting moral influence that it is through financial incentives and such in other places. But I do appreciate the freedoms we have. I see these as a gift of God, from God. And I believe we're called to be good stewards of this, of this precious gift. We're called to use it rightfully. And it's right to love our countrymen. It's right to love all men, to love men and to draw our loyalty along the lines, to love all men, I'll rephrase that, to love all men or to draw our loyalties along the lines of patriotism uh, are two very different things. Um, if we love all men, uh, there will be a loyalty to all men. We'll not want to see any harmed, to see any hurt, but we'll be about... Uh, being about our Father's business, helping each other. Paul gives some very simple directives in relating to the world. First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, he says, But concerning brotherly love, 
You have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. And what does walking properly towards those outside practically mean for us? Um, our hearts tend to naturally become aligned with our countrymen, our fellow men. Walking properly as the children of God calls a response from a godly perspective. And, and I want to address that a little bit. We, we do tend to feel aligned with our fellow men. Um, if you are, if you, for example, if you're a Russian today, you would probably be naturally inclined to, to, to be patriotic with your fellow Russians. And if you were in um, Ukraine today, you would feel the same probably. And yet God calls us to something much greater than that. He calls us to love our enemy. He calls us to love our fellow men. And that goes beyond the, our country's boundaries. It goes, well, way beyond that. And I'll share a little bit of my own experience. I recall a feeling of pride that I felt when our Romanian cook over at the orphanage in, in Romania told us that how the mil U.S. military was taking out Saddam Hussein's army. If you recall, those of you who are old enough, if you recall, Saddam had been making dire apocalyptical predictions of the U.S. soldiers' blood running up to the bridles in the desert and, and so forth. And as we know now, Saddam's army was no match and was practically destroyed overnight uh, by the U.S. military. And, and you know, when our, when our cook, so this was leading up, we knew something was going to happen. George W. Bush had been talking about it. We were hearing about it over there. And uh, we were wondering, you know, is this going to unleash all nuclear capa you know, capabilities around the world or capacities around the world? And, you know, seeing the U.S. military completely destroy that army, it, it created, me being a U.S. citizen in, inside of Romania, it created a sort of a sense of pride. And I've often thought about that. What was right about that? What was wrong about it? And, and what should I be doing about it? And... Uh, I also recall the feeling of horror and sense of confidence lost when I was, in, as a uh, young man in about 19 when I was in Belize, and I was sitting in the dentist, I was sitting in the dentist's off, office there in the waiting room, and as I was uh, glancing up at the TV and I noticed terrible carnage taking place. And I thought, you know, a horror film was on. And then I looked again and realized this was the bombing of the, the Oklahoma City bombing and that had just been blown up by uh, Timothy McVeigh. I think it's McVeigh. Um, and, and just the, the sense of, you know, you're in another country and the sense of confidence lost in your own country. Um, wondering what is going, you know, what's happening, what's going on. I recall a similar feeling of loss of foundation when I was in, when a Romanian village boy came running up to me and said, uh, the Doa Gemin, which would be the Twin Towers, they... Uh, They've gone down. They've gone down. They've been hit by airplanes. And, uh, you know, watching that and the, the footage of the planes hitting those towers and just a sense of, of loss of confidence, you know, um, and realizing that, that there's no real foundation. There's no real uh, 
stability anywhere. Only in God is there is there a foundation. You know, the, the question was oft posed to me then in Romania. Why could the world's superpower have been so exposed? Um, the above are events that I remember very vividly. Um, they're, they're outside of scripture, but they've shaped my worldview considerably. Um, but even more in recent history, I've, I've been amazed and disheartened or my country with the warp speed that moral norms have deteriorated. Uh, I recall President Clinton in dealing with gays in the military and the challenges presented then saying or introducing the don't ask, don't tell policy. And I recall President Obama encouraging the nuclear family more recently in his first term of office. Today, the nuclear family is openly mocked by many politicians, media, and influencers. And the gay lifestyle is openly paraded and, and public celebration is made of it. Um, things that I don't think that, you know, the Bible would say we shouldn't even discuss or out in the open and for all the whole world to see. And, and so I do ask this question, what do the stars and stripes even mean anymore? Uh, what do the fireworks in the Navy's display of force mean? What will this force mean to us if the powers of this world continue on a divergent course from the biblical values we espouse, the biblical values we hold dear and we practice? You know, we could go down that path. We could say, oh, everything's just going to, to pot. But I don't think we should get in that, start wringing our hands and getting up, you know, wound up in knots about this. Um, this verse up here says, My flesh and my heart faileth, but my strength, my God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I, I find that, you know, that's where we need to be. Um, these carnal weapons and this great focus on our country, beautiful as it is, um, and the country is beautiful. People are good, many good people. Um, but we find this around the world too. Um, but, you know, all of that, that, uh, all of that uh, focus it can easily become idolatry. And it's a, it's a focus on the creature, not on the creator. And man continues to adore himself, to glorify the work of his own hands. And I was thinking about it this morning, how that um, Apple's founder. Someone help me out, Apple's founder. Steve Jobs. Thank you. Steve Jobs, you know, he, he is pretty, he is pretty uh, um, genius in, in being able to take and pull together technologies and market it to the common man and uh, useful technology. But, you know, he died just like everyone else will. And, and uh, he wasn't able to do anything about that. He had to meet his creator. And, and creative was, it was a, a very large mantra of, of Steve Jobs, being creative. Well, God's the creator. He's the creator. And, uh, you know, getting right with him, serving him, adoring him. The psalmist David puts it this way. In Psalm 8, 2, verse 3, verse 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You know, if we really want to, to understand creative and creator, 
Let's go out and look at the stars for a while. What is man that you're mindful of him? You know, take some time, be out there all alone and see that beauty. And it makes, puts us in our place if we're really humble. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? So I'd like to close this up here with this portion. The fireworks our country looks forward to imported from China can be pretty amazing. It really can. And I've heard say they're fantastic, they're beautiful. And that's a sentiment I'd have to agree with. They can be that. However, these in no way compare to the good thunderstorm or the amazing rainbow or an amazing sunrise or a sunset of, of evening colors on the west slope of a snowy mountain. You know, there's, there's no comparison. And um, so what's our, what's our role? Um, Ephesians 5.15 says, See then you walk circumspectly. This means very carefully, not as fools, but as wise. And the above that I'm sharing is for perspective and for, as a caution to us. I believe we need perspective as we come into these times of celebration. And we need caution. We need to listen to our conscience and we need to be careful that we project a consistent testimony. Um, Care to guard ourselves from the celebration that focuses on man and on his accomplishment. Care to guard ourselves and our children from the display of worldly immodesty and so forth. And I do believe there's a difference in observing something and being part of it or complicit to it. I'm not suggesting it's wrong to buy some fireworks, although I would say it's a questionable investment at best from a stewardship point of view. Neither do I want to imply that it's wrong to observe fireworks, and I'll add, from a distance. But to be part of that crowd, to be part of that, you know, I remember attending a a, um, a Blue Angels show, and I, I didn't feel comfortable there, and I don't think God wanted me to feel comfortable there. It was not the crowd that God wanted me to be in. Um, to walk circumspectly with Karis Paul says, you know, I think um, makes us be careful how we interact with the world's events, how we respond to them. We don't want to be like Lot and end up in Sodom because our tents are facing that direction. Um, so that's, that's my, that's what the, uh, the concern, the, the, um, perspective I'd like to to put out there this morning. Paul says this to Timothy, therefore I exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is something we know to do. We're given biblical uh, authority to do that is to offer supplications prayers and intercessions for all men and especially for kings and all who are in authority uh, that, that we may what that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives uh, in all godliness and reverence and if we have that quiet and peaceful life we have a lot to be thankful for and it's a stewardship it's a gift that we have to to maintain as Christians so that's that part. And now I'd like to talk about something that's very special to me. Uh, that is the believer's reward, and I'm going to call it true freedom. 
Um, as most of you know, we're, we're moving towards a year of, of uh, not having Japheth with us, of losing our son to a drowning. That's, that was in July 23. And it's, it's, it's been an ongoing journey um, of, of grief and also of, of uh, finding our way through this. Uh, there's been a lot of ups and downs. One of one of the things that um, that hit me recently, I realized it was more of a subconscious realization, and that is the thought that, you know, maybe there is no tomorrow. Maybe all is. Maybe it's just for today, and uh, maybe the grave is the last, and. Uh, as I as I realized this was in my subconscious, I uh, I prayed and I, I prayed that God would show me that He would make it clear to me and bring about that joy of tomorrow, of eternity, of the Christian's reward. And uh, so, as I was as I was, this is again had come to my conscious rather than my subconscious. Uh, I was reading through the book of Corinthians and came to chapter 15. And I would like to to uh, read through that with you this morning and uh, would like to share uh, the highlights that have blessed me out of, that, of reading that passage as a encouragement to, to all of us. <clears throat> So Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15 here a very strong case for the resurrection. There were some of the Corinthians that are obviously saying, there is no tomorrow. It's all vain. The Christian life is really just a culture. It's just for the now and for today. And um, and Paul's refuting that. And he's He's making it, he lays out a case for that. So point one here is, and I'll, is the resurrection of Christ was witnessed by many men, including Paul himself. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you first that all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say he was seen by Cephas, by the twelve. He was seen by 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part are still present. He goes on to say some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, then the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also as one that born out of due time. And we know Paul's story seeing Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he goes on to say, I'm the least of these apostles, but by the grace of God, I, I, it was this, this seeing Christ wasn't vain. And so that this is the first part of the case. He was seen, Christ was seen after his death and after his resurrection, he was seen by these 500 and, and by the apostles and by James and, and then Paul himself. 
And then he, in verse 12 through um, 19, our hope of resurrection and eternal life resides completely in the power of Christ and his finished work on the cross. In his resurrection is found our deliverance and our hope. Uh, that, those are my own words. Summarizing that. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do you, some among you, say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. In fact, if the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable or miserable, he says in the King James, I believe. So here he just inextricably wraps the two together, Christ's resurrection and our hope of resurrection. I believe Christianity is the best way for men to live, for man to live. Uh, as we live most as we live most closely to God's design for us, uh, we realize our greatest potential uh, because we're living like the manual says we should live. So, you know, if you create a vehicle and you take care of it like the manual says, you, you'll realize its best potential. And in a crude way, that's, you know, how I'm referring to the Christian culture as taken from the Bible is the best way for man to live. Uh, but it's beyond that. It's, it doesn't end there. It's beyond that. And praise the Lord for that. Uh, so point one Paul makes is that Christ's resurrection was visible. It was seen. Point two he makes is that as Christians, we're, our, our lives are inextricably linked to Christ. And so if Christ was raised, then we'll be raised. If he wasn't raised, we won't be raised. And, and there's, no, there's no, uh, nothing outside of that. And the pitiable part that he's talking about is the only hope, if, if, only, if in this life we only have hope in Christ uh, and don't have that eternal life, that would truly be pitiable because um, that's what we look forward to is a heavenly life with Christ. And then Paul makes the resounding case that the resurrection is the work of Christ and that those who are his will have part in this glorious heavenly event. And that's in verse 20 and 20 through 22. But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits being the first one, the first ripe fruit, if you like to think of it that way. Uh, the rest of the fruit are ripening. For since by man came death, that's man in the small print, right? Not capitalized. But by man also, and that's in the large print, capitalized, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And then 24 through 28, Christ will bring order to everything. All will be at his feet. He will present all to God that all will be complete in subjection unto the creator of God. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. <clears throat> but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident he has put all things under him. He who has put all things under him is accepted. So Christ isn't being put under himself. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why Paul needed to bring that up. But now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So the Son will bring all things in subjection to himself, which is Christ, and then present this to God, um, who will be all in all. And then he goes on to say, talk about the heavenly body. The, Christ, the Christians will be given a heavenly body. Those who are Christ will be raised in newness, in a heavenly body. He talks about the different kinds of flesh. There's one of grains, different kinds of grains, different kinds of uh, flesh of men, birds. And then in verse 40, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. So the celestial, of course, is heavenly, terrestrial, earthly. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. He goes on to give the different glories of the, of the heavenly. Um, and then he goes on to say that the glory that, that, that we'll be giving will be given a, a celestial body. And uh, he, he, already, he outlines this in verse 42 through 46. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So we're given these earthly bodies, these shells that are, are sown in dishonor. And he says they'll be raised in glory. Sown in weakness, they'll be raised in power. Sown as a natural body, raised as a spiritual body. And affirms there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. There's a first Adam and there's the second Adam, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, and that's Christ. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As man of dust, so also are those who are made of the dust, and as is the heavenly man, so are also those who are heavenly. So he's saying, as is Christ, the heavenly man, so also will be those who are heavenly. And where does the heavenly start? I want to go back to Jesus' words to Nicodemus. You must be born again. It starts right there, being born again. Um, that starts that divine transformation that won't be completed until the body is transformed into the heavenly, into the image of Christ himself. In verse 49, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And then a mystery is revealed. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And this is something we can do. You must be born again, coming back to that. That is moving, that is us moving, grasping, taking a hold of God, 
of the Son of Man and of his power of the message of the cross. And that's where the incorruptible process begins. That's what prepares us for eternity. That's the seed that we have a part in. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. So there's some that won't die. There are some that will be here when that moment comes. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed, or we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Death will be, death will be defeated forever. The awful part of the Genesis account, the sin, the curse, will be closed forever. The beautiful, the beautiful part of the Genesis account that's typified with Isaac uh, or with, with Abraham being willing to give up his son, um, the blood of the lamb, the lamb, that ram becoming this, the substitutionary um, sacrifice, and then going on into the Exodus account at the Passover where the lamb, the blood of the lamb, uh, covered the doorpost and kept the angel from coming. And then the blood of the lamb all the way to the New Testament where we find Christ giving himself, his own blood um, for us. That will be forever celebrated for eternity. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your sting? O Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is love. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we need that encouragement, no matter where we're at in life. Our Christian lives aren't always easy. In fact, Many times it's an upward battle, a battle for our faith, a battle for um, hope. And we find that in the word of God. We find it in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us. And we can be thankful for that. So let's be like Nicodemus. Well, we don't know exactly what Nicodemus' response was, but let's listen to words, Jesus' words of of salvation to Nicodemus, you must be born again. As we become born again, as we're becoming born again, we can look forward to that incorruptibility, that immortality, that victory, in uh, that reunion with Christ and with those we love. I'll turn the time back over to Brother Ivan. Let's